Hello and welcome to Be With Champions. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And today I have a conversation with Dr. Luke Bennett. He's no relation, but he is, a, he is a good friend of mine. And in this interview, he discusses his time in the Royal Flying Doctor's Service in some of the remote, remote places in the entire world. And then he also talks about his position as the Managing Director of Sports at Hintzer Performance, where he works with the best Formula One drivers and teams in the world. He won't name names in this interview, but you get a pretty good idea that he's working with the very best that there is. There's so many great takeaways in, the, in this interview, so, so enjoy it as much as I did. There's so many things that we can put into our own lives. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, please share it. Um, give me any reviews. I'd love to hear from you. Um, you can reach out to me on any of the social platforms, and I'll do the very best to get back to you as quick as possible. But until next time, enjoy this one, guys. Take it easy. Bye. All right, the billion dollar industry of Formula One motorsport, where milliseconds can be the difference between hundreds of millions of dollars or potential loss of life. To quote Jackie Stewart, the British three-time world champion, there is no doubt that Formula One has the best risk management of any sport or any industry in the world. Today's guest is at the epicenter of this incredible industry of Formula One racing. He's the managing director of sports at Hintz Performance where he develops and manages the performance and medical programs for the teams and drivers of the FIA Formula One World Championships. He watches over an elite high-performance team of coaches and medical personnel who keep the drivers and teams at the peak of their performance for the grueling year-long season of Formula One. To understand the success of Hintz Performance, you simply need to look at the scoreboard. They have a track record of 14 Formula One World Championships and six Constructors Championships. Today, my guest, has a wealth of knowledge that can be applied to optimize your business, sports, and your everyday life. He's an incredible inspiration of someone who had a dream and made it happen. He's been a good friend of mine for over 20 years. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining me on Be With Champions, Dr. Luke Bennett. How are you, mate? Greg, how are you, sir? I'm all right, all right. Where are you at the moment? I'm having a rare week at home in Switzerland. Um, I'm based here, but I think spent something like 40 or 50 nights in this apartment last year so uh, it's uh, it's good to have a little regroup before we kick off <laughs> formula one testing in barcelona next week it's amazing the life that you live like we've watched you in this role that you've been in for the last sort of five to ten years and just so people understand th- this this interview with you i had to plan almost three months ago to book in this this little bit of time and and you're not just busy, you're incredibly productive. I think we get lost in those, you know, people saying I'm so, so busy. You are somebody that is on it all the time. And like you said, you're only home 40 days a year. How does that, how do you make that happen? How do you keep that, how do you sustain that? Um, I think it's sustained by a love for the sport. I, I think ultimately I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't have have such a deep love for the sport and I've I watched my first Formula One race in 1985 when the Australian Grand Prix came back to the Formula One calendar in Adelaide and I was I was hooked from that that first day and haven't haven't really missed a race since but um, I think you need to um, you need to have something driving a schedule like that that makes you get up in the morning and really enjoy what you're doing and you know all, all work has its mundane elements but uh, really I don't spend too many days where it feels like drudgery. Well, that's just it. I think ever since 
you know, we met, I think Formula One was always one of the things that you wanted to be involved in. And, and I want to talk about that a bit later in the show, how you actually really made that happen. And, and like I said in the introduction, you know, you, you wanted to be involved in this industry and, and now you're one of the guys that is really almost keeping it together. If you look at the way the, the traveling circus, as they call it, and, and Hintzer performance and your role within Hintzer and, and providing all the services to these drivers and teams to, to keep them all healthy, to keep them on their game. And like I said, there's hundreds of millions of dollars that, that can be made or lost and even lives at stake. And your passion is what's kept that alive for you. And, and I think that's just, you know, I look back at my career and I think people go like, you know, Greg, how did you keep going? How did you keep going? It's like, there is just one thing. It's like, you've got to love it. And if you love it and you're excited to get out of bed, if you're excited to get to the airport and jump on a plane, it's amazing how you can just keep that going. You know, that energy just keeps driving you. Yeah. And then the years can fly by pretty quickly on that basis. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Yeah. So what's this year look like for you then? It's like a, another year you've got a all the teams and drivers and coaches and everybody lined up for the year and, you know, is it much the same? Yeah, so the calendar just keeps growing steadily. Um, we're up to 22 races this year, which will be the, the longest Formula One calendar in history. Uh, we've got new races in Vietnam and, and a return to the Dutch Grand Prix. Um, I guess as we speak at this date, there's um, a little bit of doubt over whether we're going to be able to go to China with uh, the coronavirus outbreak. But um, otherwise, uh, yeah, we're looking at quite a long season, starting with testing next week in February and all the way through to the first week of December. So it's going to be a really fascinating championship where we're sort of seven years into the current regulation era at present and you tend to get a lot of convergence of the teams over that sort of time so mercedes have been very dominant in recent years but red bull are catching up ferrari are always there um with a, a huge expenditure so i think there's high hopes for a really tight three-way battle as well as you know teams like renault and mclaren and others who can potentially pop up for podiums or even a, a random race victory at times well it's interesting i, I watched that documentary on uh Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it. I actually, the, the name skips my mind for the moment. I'll have to look it up while we're it's chatting. It's extraordinary. The, the Drive to Survive um, was Drive a, to Survive. Yeah, a bit of an experiment, but it's it's um the, the number of people who have either no interest or just a very casual interest in Formula One who've absolutely loved it, and and particularly I think for the the female audience, the the appreciation of Formula One just deepens so much when you have an, uh, an understanding of the personalities involved and the human stories behind it. And, mm. you know, watching a race on Sunday just has so many different layers to it when, uh, when you factor in the people. It's, it's yeah. the world's most interesting and expensive and colourful circus. <laughs> I, 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 it certainly is. And anybody that hasn't, you know, that maybe has sort of watched a little bit of motorsport, maybe they're not into it, maybe they're not. Go watch this Netflix show, uh, Drive to Survive, because what it does is, it, like you said, it shows the various layers. It, it shows how the billionaires own these teams and, and what it means to them. It, it shows the, the, the managers of these teams and the directors of these teams and how they all operate amongst each other. And then it has the drivers and their relationships. And, and what I also loved about it was it really showed a lot of the teams that maybe aren't highlighted when you watch, you know, on the Sunday race, you, you're kind of watching the big teams like 
like you mentioned, Mercedes and Red Bull and Ferrari, but it actually shows you the the best of the rest. And they're all trying desperately to sort of be the best of the rest and, and how a fourth or fifth or sixth is far better than, you know, being further back. Uh, it's a great, it's a great show. Yeah. Yeah. So much interest in color down through the, the mid grid and, um, and the second season of drive to survive comes out in a couple of weeks time at the end of February, 2020, as we speak. Oh. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. So that'll be good to – so what are your picks for – what does it look like for teams and drivers for 2020? You're saying it's kind of – is it coming together closer, you think? Because it seems to me this last five to six years we've kind of watched Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton and, and Bottas sort of dominate. Is, is it likely that the we're going to see a little bit closer racing? As I said, that's the hope. And, and the more mature the regulations, the closer the racing tends to get historically. So. Um, I mean, Red Bull can never be discounted. They've, they're an incredibly talented um, team of car designers and drivers that they have there. Um, Mercedes won last year, but but really it was much tighter than it looked from the outside. Um, they were the underdogs at different times of the year, and Ferrari are right there challenging, mm. and it wouldn't take much to go wrong for Mercedes to to have one of their competitors win the championship. So I think it's, it's certainly going to be worth watching and... Uh, We'll, we'll start to know next week when the cars are unveiled and out on track for the first time. And so how do you – you're one of the few guys that can basically – you work with so many of the drivers and so many of the teams. How do you um, manage your bias? And, you know, you're one of the guys that can walk down pit lane and go into the various pit lanes because there's so much secrecy involved um, in each of the – you know, behind each of the cars and what the teams are doing. You're one of the few people that can actually walk down pit lane and say good day to most most of the the teams and drivers. How do you manage bias and and you know are you able to manage bias? Or how does that work for you? Yeah, no, you're quite right, Greg. This is a, a constant issue. Um, we we are extremely privileged to be trusted to work across. We have at least one driver in every team this year, and um, um, I think that comes really from an expectation that our, our history in the sport is medically led and um, and so mm. there's this sense of medical ethics and medical confidentiality about what we do and of course a big part of our work actually is is um, looking after the health of our drivers and teams but um, it's not a privilege that we take lightly and we have to be extremely sensitive to um, the confidentiality of our clients and as you say it's an incredibly secretive sport in terms of the technology and the tactics and the, the people so um, our coaches our physios working one-on-one -on -one with their drivers are, are absolutely clear that they are they are dedicated solely to that driver and um, and it's up to myself and my coaching director Pete McKnight to sort of keep the overview of what's going on across the teams and to manage those relationships sensitively and uh, and to make sure that all my drivers there they're sort of like our children and you, you really genuinely celebrate all of their successes and and um, and support them when times are tougher. It's uh, it's mm. as I say I, I think I think a privilege um, that that you can never really underestimate and and you have to work at every day every week in the paddock mm. yeah because i'm sure there's at times where you'll you know people we're still humans and 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 people have personalities that you prefer to be around or you you tend to find yourself you know wanting the best maybe for a certain driver or something at different times you know just because you get along with them and and just going hang on hang on this is work you know separate sort of any sort of personal feelings you have and and, and just stepping back and, and like you said treating it 
with the the medical background that you have and being very clinical about it and being less personal and um i want to talk a lot about uh, you know what you guys do specifically with wellness and health and everything with with hints but for now i want to wind the clock back and and really talk about you for a moment and when did you sort of you said 1985 was when you really sort of found your passion for motorsport did you just happen to be watching that on tv and that was it you just said okay i you know and, and even in that time you're like okay i want to jump in a go-kart and i want to become a, a driver myself what did that all look like for you yeah it's a little bit unclear i i was sort of interested in and four-wheel driving and off-roading and our family had had camping trips to various places from my youngest years and so there was this sort of background interest in cars and and some of that technology and then i remember my two of my high school mates had um decided they were going to watch this this thing this australian grand prix on tv and um I didn't know anything about it until then, but but Channel Nine uh, in Australia put on this massive effort for their their coverage, and in fact, their coverage ended up winning the international awards for for the best F one um, sort of live presentation over many many years subsequent to that, which which was a, a real underdog thing for Australia. But um, you know, we had Sir Jackie Stewart down there commentating, um, and and the colour and life of this packed program in in Melbourne, which sort of just captured my imagination and. Um, watching Formula One was not an easy thing from Australia in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, we had a bare minimum of coverage. Um, it was always sort of very late on a Sunday night, on a school night, and and, um, <laughs> and the races actually most of the time weren't that exciting. There was, you know, people leading by 30, 60, 90 seconds uh, or more, and you were sort of just waiting for one of the cars to blow up a lot of the time to provide interest. <laughs> but um. But yeah, it, it had this strange captivation, and, and I stuck with it over time. And um, later on, of course, we had some Australian interest with with Mark Webber and then and then Daniel Ricciardo over the last ten to fifteen years in the sport as well. So so that made watching a lot easier. But um, yeah, it really was some inspiration from those early days on the wide world of sports in Australia. Did you ever think about being a driver? No, I, I do love driving, and. Uh, um, I've done a very small amount of karting and sort of rally course type driving and, and um, it's something I'd, I would absolutely love to do. I'd maybe love to do the Dakar one day. So much more attracted to rally and off-road in terms of actual driving myself. But um, mm. it's one of those things that's never sort of risen quite to the top of the priority list or the budget list. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but yeah. You know, never say never. No. Did you, when did you decide then, okay, so karting might be out for you or driving? When did you decide medicine was the direction you were going to go? Because it feels like you've got two ma- two passions one's medicine and one's motorsport, and you've been able to merge them with Hinsa. But when did you get into medicine? Yeah, medicine kind of turned out as a happy accident as well. Um, I, I remember the night before university applications were due in at the end of high school and I, I had five or six very, very different um, options listed and, and medicine was there because I think I knew just a little bit about it. My, my dad was the first person ever in his family to go to university, but he, he was um, a kind and selfless GP with a, a, very, um, a, a very interesting practice in, in Brisbane, Australia. And so... I think I just had this sense that medicine really left open the widest range of 
opportunities um, for someone who didn't really know what they wanted to do with their life. So, so <laughs> serendipitously, that's where I ended up, and and no regrets. It's it's been a, a wonderful vocation, and um, and it's led me in directions I could never have imagined. It's crazy when we we you know all the pressures of leaving high school, and you got to know what you you got to know what you got to go know. You know, you got to get going. You got to get on with your life, and uh, and none of us really know what we're doing. And it's 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 fascinating to me how you know suddenly your your passions come alive and you can start to go hang on I'm, i love my motorsport and i love my, my medicine and, and here we are you know and then from there you went and you did how old were you when you went to the flying doctors and tell me a little bit about that whole experience because i think a lot of these people listening we have a lot of australian listeners but there's a lot from the us and around the world that might not know much about the uh, flying doctors yeah so i um Finished uni, worked sort of my basic internship and junior doctor rotations, went traveling for a number of years, lived in the UK, um, returned to Australia and and did six years of sort of basic training in intensive care and critical care medicine, which which became my, my main love medically. Um, mm. And then following on from that, um, had just the most remarkable six years stint with the Royal Flying Doctor Service of Western Australia. And we were based up in in the remote northwest in the, the Pilbara and the Kimberley regions. And um, this is a, a totally unique um, medical service. There's nothing like it anywhere else in the world. Um, essentially, this is a state the size of Western Europe with only 2 million people populating. So so very, very widely distributed, tiny little settlements everywhere. <laughs> and, and really just one city where all the medical services are located. So. Um, rather than building lots of regional hospitals, there's this incredible aeromedical retrieval service that, that um, is flying all day, every day to retrieve really, really sick people back to over normally six to 12 hours. Um, these, these retrievals take to get people back to definitive medical care. So lots of incredible medical stories there, GB. And, um, and the, the flying doctors you mentioned um, maybe not being so known in North America, but uh, in Europe, there was a, a really bad television soap opera in the 1980s, um, <laughs> which uh, is available as something like a 42-disc box set nowadays, but it's it's very, very well known in Europe and you get all sorts of expectations when you talk about the Flying Doctors here. <laughs> That's right. There was that series that went on in Australia. I remember that. I know there was it's no, just... near as much romance in our, in our working lives up there. <laughs> As, as in the right. miniseries. I know. So how did it work for you guys? Did you live up there permanently and, and then – or did you go do sort of contract work? How does it work? Because it seems so – such a remote lifestyle. Um, I mean, I think you enjoy that kind of remote lifestyle, but is it is it something you did for a year or two and then came back or did you just do months at a time? How did that operate? No, no, it was a full-time role um, based first in a town called Port Headland, which is a massive iron ore port on the north coast of Australia, and then near Broome in the Kimberley, a little place called Derby. So um, there's a couple of these bases scattered around the state with a couple of aircraft and a bunch of pilots and nurses and doctors, and we sort of just fly out to serve our region. And when I say our, our local region, um, you know, in, in the... <laughs> In the European context, this is like maybe being based in in Paris and 
and having a really sick patient in Berlin and and the hospital that you've got to take them to is in Madrid. So they're, they're the kind of distances <laughs> you've covering. It really is insane. And these are on the – did you ever – like these little planes that you guys were in, they were tiny, weren't they? Were they little twin prop? How big were the planes? So we used uh, something called a Pilatus PC-12 or a single prop plane. They're sort of a medium-sized aircraft, but, but yeah, still on the smaller side. And – um, and still a propeller aircraft, so very wearing in terms of noise and vibration, but but very versatile. You could land them on a dirt or a mud airstrip in the middle of nowhere, very short takeoff. Uh, we'd frequently be chasing cows and kangaroos off the airstrip as we landed. And um, Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, some pretty gnarly times. I remember actually my very first weekend in the Flying Doctors, we, we had to go to this... Um, baby that was being born prematurely this this mother was in premature labor and we were literally in the middle of this cyclone trying to land um on a remote coastal part of the kimberley and you know we were buffeted and we had four attempts at landing and we we didn't get down eventually but i was actually much more terrified about um having to deliver a baby when we landed than i was about <laughs> dying in a, a plane crash really <laughs> <laughs> the baby was was born uh, uneventfully with the local nurse at the airstrip, and uh, is doing well to this day, I believe. Is that is that right? Had you that is hilarious to me. So had you had not much experience delivering babies, or or was it just because of the environment you're in, having I mean, to deliver a baby or a premature baby at that? Uh, we we all do our five deliveries at medical school, but that was the last time. Is I'd, that it? Oh, yeah, my yeah. goodness. And, of course, we, we're trained in sort of some of the um, the resuscitation management around obstetrics. I'd, I'd be much more comfortable managing that. But um, our nurses, I should say, in the, in the flying doctors are all qualified midwives, so they tend to take a, a leading role in that. And, and we, we fly many, many um, women in premature labour. This was a core part of the work, and, and the, the name of the game is just keeping the baby in situ and stopping the labour. And um, I, I think I'm a semi-niche specialist in that part of obstetrics. <laughs> no what? baby was going to be born on my plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it never happened. It never happened. Then you you were fine. You no, always made it. Quite a rare occurrence. I had a pretty near thing with twenty four week twins one night. Um, and you know th- these wow. babies are tiny. You know they fit mm. in the palm of your hand, and they're right mm. on the viability of whether they can survive at that age. And these these twins, mum was sort of fully dilated in advanced labour. We we were in the plane for about six hours door to door, and incredibly stressful. But, um, you know, we, we did manage to get them to the tertiary hospital without, uh, without incident. But you can imagine a scenario like that where there's, there's two ne- neonatal resources and a, a bleeding mum in the back of an aircraft with just one yeah. doctor and one nurse. Things can turn pretty gnarly pretty quickly. And, uh, wow. And that, uh, yeah. What's more intense, being around the Formula One paddock or, or being on that plane <laughs> with 24-week-old with, with twins about to be born at any second? Look, there, there's a different kind of intensity. <laughs> I'm, I'm lucky. I'm lucky to have this this championship adrenaline around every every day in my workplace now. But um, in terms of professional satisfaction, in terms of just the impossible medical situations you find yourself in, I, I'm sure I'm never going to have a job like like we did in the northwest of Australia with the flying doctors. Well, I think they're lucky to have you because of all the people I know, your your temperament and the the way that you can manage your emotions, um, you, you do that incredibly well and especially under high pressure. And that's why you're in the job that you're in. I think you, you, you're probably the most suited person that I know. I know that I would 
be suited to it at all. You know me, I'm fairly emotional and passionate and tend to go off the wall. And that's why I've got Laura in my life. But I think, uh, yeah, you well, know, yeah, you know, it's you're nice, you- of, nice of you to say that, Greg. But, you know, I should point out that on any given day, there's still several dozen doctors and nurses and pilots doing this job out there. I, I certainly mm. wasn't the only one. Um, no. And it, I think critical care medicine in general teaches you this. Um, you, you learn when a patient wheels in the door at 3 a.m. and there's literally six different life-threatening problems going on and and, and all the decision-making rests with you, you learn the hard way to fall back on a framework of thinking and um, mm. and really, really good lessons for life, I think, to maintain that calm, to, to fall back on what you know and to just start at the beginning of any given problem, no matter how complex it is, and, and work your way through and more often than not, you come out the other end um, with a good outcome and, and feeling pretty happy with life that you've made a difference. Do they actually teach you that kind of mental training in medical school? Like do they put you under duress when they're, when they're teaching you all of this and, and so you can kind of simulate real life before you get out into the real life or you just learnt as you went? You know, certainly not where I went to medical school. I suspect in more modern courses, things have changed a lot since I graduated 25 years ago but um but thinking modes um are probably honed more um after graduation where simulation has become a very very big part of medical training there's most big hospitals will have a simulation lab where um you know there's mannequins and machines and protocols all set up to simulate different scenarios so yeah that that is a very proven method of learning now Mm, because it's it's almost like the same kind of learning that you need to have being an athlete to some degree and that ability under high pressure fatigue um, to make clear, you know, decisions at that moment. And uh, one of the episodes I I interviewed uh, Mark Allen, six-time Kona Ironman world champion, and we were talking about the mental space and and clarity that you need to be in. And and I was talking about visualizing and affirmations. And and he said, actually, what he really tried to do is just um, calm the mind and, and, quieten the mind of the words that he used and and i think in those sort of situations under that duress and the pressure that you're under it's just quieten the mind and what do i need to do step by step to get myself through this yeah absolutely there's a there's a real element of mindfulness to to all of this um which is you know an overused phrase in many many ways but yeah it's a it's a real privilege by the way to be following people like mark allen and dave scott and all the unbelievable other champions that you've had on this podcast I, i'm proud to be by far the slowest iron man athlete you've ever had <laughs> <laughs> well i think yeah i I've, I've started off this uh this podcast with with uh, many many champions i think i added up the world titles and olympic medals or something the other day with laura and i think i was getting close to 30 world titles or something with the first sort of eight people off the, off the rank so and there I, is I a we haven't mentioned that uh, we have the same surname, but are completely unrelated. But I've always, <laughs> I've always been the, the slowest honorary team member of Team Bennett. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But you're still, you're still riding one of my bikes, my one of my winning bikes, I think, aren't you? Yeah, From, uh, right here down in the storeroom here in Switzerland. I have the oh, it's in the storeroom. Yeah, prize, prize money winning bike in in triathlon <laughs> history. <laughs> I still, I really enjoy riding. It's fantastic. Yeah, that's awesome. So. Okay, all those years of the flying doctors. Then, this is how did you get to where you are? How, when did you finally? When did you hear about uh, Hinsa, and and how did you get to that? And and tell me a little bit about who is Hinsa and the founder Aki Hinsa. So I wouldn't like to 
overstate um, your sort of idea that this was all some some fulfillment of a plan that I that I executed flawlessly. But um, I was working through all of my time in intensive care and and in the flying doctors. I was sort of volunteering as a weekend hobby at motorsport events, providing trackside um, trauma and rescue services. And you can imagine in the flying doctors, we we did a lot of pre-hospital trauma. And so it was actually well suited to that kind of role. Um, I worked at the Australian Grand Prix in Melbourne for 11 years and we covered the Korean Grand Prix when it was around for a couple of years. Um, but I actually really enjoyed the off-road and rally events more. So we have a number of international rallies here in Australia and um, these events can be really interesting. There's often, you know, multiple occupants injured in a car, long response times. Um, you've got to, you know, do your own fire suppression and extrication and and, and the, mm. the complexity of the trauma is, is much higher. It's very hard to hurt yourself actually, um, especially in a Formula One car on a circuit. So, so I was doing this over... A decade or so and um and dr aki hinsi you mentioned was was our founder he, he was a finnish trauma surgeon who um started working with mika hakkonen in formula one in 1998-99 when he won his world championships so aki was still at the races while i was working in melbourne and um, in fact, Lewis Hamilton's first ever physiotherapist was an Australian guy called Adam Costanzo. And um, Adam had a tangential relationship with my sister through university. And I'd sort of just got talking to Adam one weekend at the Australian Grand Prix and subsequently met Aki. And we sort of kept in touch. We'd, we'd talk a couple of times a year at different races at, at Melbourne and other events. And um, as it turned out, um, Aki had been on the road for 10 or 15 years at that point, was was looking to step back from full-time travel and was keeping an eye out for potential candidates to fill his role. And it, it did take a number of years um, to, to sort of get that deal over the line. Um, um, Aki Hintzer was a, an incredibly significant figure in the Formula One paddock and the the team bosses, the the influential people that he was working with were very reluctant to see him step back, but eventually he did get to spend a bit more time with his family and his other his other working interests as a surgeon. And um in at the beginning of twenty fourteen I was lucky enough to to take over his role full time. Mm. And and when you did that, did you sort of dive straight in or did you travel with Aki for a number of years? Uh, or did he kind of go, okay, I'm stepping out and you're in? Yeah, great story. Um, Aki believed in throwing people in at the deep end. So we, we went to the first preseason test in Jerez in Spain, um, January 2014, and I thought we'd have a, a good relaxed three or four days of testing together. He'd show me the ropes. We'd go through the medications. I'd meet all the patients. But um, I think Aki announced at lunchtime on the second day that he was leaving and uh, and. <laughs> threw me the keys to the kingdom and uh, that was the entire <laughs> extent of my handover and it, it's sort of not just meeting the clients and and uh and working with them but you know there's this whole business to run in terms of the contracts mm. and keeping all the coaches employed and um the finances in shape and all of this had to be learned on the fly which is pretty funny in retrospect <laughs> but, yeah, but so here you are uh, uh, typically uh, he, he was a, he was a genuine guru figure but um he, he liked to do things differently when it came to organizing the business like what you've heard so far then make sure you never miss a podcast by clicking the subscribe button now 
This show is only made possible by you, the listener, and if you'd like to support Greg, please visit the Be With Champions Patreon page. Your support, very much appreciated. Now, back to the show. So here you are, a hands-on guy, you know, doing, you know, the trauma surgeon and and all these kinds, well, you know, trying to keep your hands messy, if you like, and suddenly you've got to be Mr. Business talking to these team owners and uh, being responsible for doing these huge contracts and putting together these these uh, the right personality coaches, not just right for the job, but you know the the right people with the right drivers and the right teams. Did that was that overwhelming in the sense? Did you did you feel you were suited to that? Did you feel you were you were, you were drowning at times, or how did that all work out? Oh, look, I, I think I've done okay in retrospect, but you know it's fair to say I had no preparation or specific knowledge or training in most of these areas. Um, the medicine once again was the glue that kind of held it all together and i think there was just no time to to think about um the situations i was in that the problems um, both medical and logistical and contractual were just coming thick and fast and you just had to deal mm. with them as they came and suddenly you look up and it's five years later and and you know we still got a business it's still running and <laughs> make some changes that have stuck and uh it's it's nice to look back in retrospect at how far things have come but um but you don't really understand at the time um you know mm-hmm. you're so immersed in what you're doing that um it, it just moves so you, you you're not um able to be stressed too much because it's all it's all just happening around you on a day-to-day basis the decisions are, are there to be made and uh and we crack on well, your wealth of knowledge, this is what fascinates me is, is I mean, you really need to be somewhat of an expertise around everything to do with sport. You need to be somewhat of an expert of everything to do with medical and, and your patients. And then you need to be somewhat of an expert when it comes to business and not just business, but big business. I mean, we're talking, like I said at the top of the show, this is a billion dollar industry in the Formula One world. I mean, you've had to grasp all three of those, and it sounds like you know, in a relatively short period of time on the business side of things, you've had to sort of just quickly learn and basically get a master's degree in 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 business and relationships. Um, you know, do you look at yourself like that and go, "Wow, I've had to really"? Sport was one area that I think you were comfortable with. I think you grew up quite athletic and, and and you loved motorsport medical obviously you were trained in that and now you've got the the business savvy you know being the managing director of sports at, at, at Hintzer there's a lot there that you've had to take on in a relatively short time and make happen and you've been successful doing it do you ever feel overwhelmed or do you feel you know that yeah, I need some help at all or you know are you the only doctor that goes on these on this um trip around the world um so I am the only doctor within our organisation that's travelling to all of the races. We have um, another Finnish sports physician, Petri Hellinus, who who fills in for one or two races a year for me and is a great support. But um, essentially it's just me. We have a couple of um, smaller competitors who are also in the paddock um, p- providing medical services to the teams that we don't um, we do not do that for. But, um, but generally a lot does fall on my shoulders. And, yeah, I think... In some ways, again, the flying doctors and and this experience in pre-hospital medicine um, gives you a certain, I wouldn't say fearlessness, 
because there's always anxiety, but you you become very accustomed to just dealing with every situation on its merits with the resources that you have, and um, and so uh, particularly around adult medicine and adult situations, um, I, I'm stressed, yes, on a regular basis, but not gen not generally intimidated by those scenarios. So in a medical sense, that the clinical work was somewhat more straightforward than I was used to. And, and I think that's always the first priority. When, when somebody's sick, that's the first task that you need to deal with. Secondary to that is in a business sense, I, I really just kept things very simple. And, and for the first few years, it's just making sure that the, the bills are getting paid and that the income for the company is, is slightly larger than the outgoings and, and that uh, everybody's got a contract and everybody's happy in, in terms of our, our staff. So I'm, I'm really lucky to have some good mentors now. Um, Aki unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, but his daughter, Stina, is our CEO. And um, mm. she's been a, a wonderful mentor in the business sense. Um, our, our CFO, Yerki, and our chairman, Yuha Akras, who, who was very senior in Nokia. So I'm, good, I'm lucky to have some good business mentors that I can turn to when mm. I need specific help around those sorts of things. But, um, but generally... Business can be pretty complicated, but um, but it also can be relatively simple. You know, a, a lot mm. of it's um, a lot of it's sort of just pass fail, and a lot of it's just about um, keeping the numbers roughly added up in the right direction. So. <laughs> <laughs> there we are, everybody. <laughs> Business simplified. <laughs> that was great. Uh, so I want to get into specifics about uh, what you actually do. And your team does it, Hintzer, and and how do you keep you know these drivers and teams um, in that peak performance that they need to be? Because, like you mentioned, twenty two races throughout the year plus testing um, on all four corners of the globe. I mean, you go, you guys are all over the place all the time. You know, as a professional athlete myself, traveling the world and trying to stay in peak condition all year round is incredibly difficult and i'm curious as to how you guys manage that on a day-to-day and and how do each of the coaches involved with the drivers and the teams how do they how are they involved what are they doing to keep them on that sort of peak performance so so our system involves um using our staff who we call performance coaches and typically in formula one each driver will be one-on-one with their own performance coach full-time throughout the year so that person is traveling with them um, trackside at the race events and also generally lives near them so they, they catch up and they're, they're training and optimizing between races. Um, most of our performance coaches are from the sports science fraternity. So we're, we're lucky to have a really, um, really deep pool of well-qualified sports scientists, in particularly in the UK and Australia and Scandinavia, who are quite experienced in elite sport. Most of them have really good master's qualifications. And so um, we tap into the the really good general knowledge base of a sports scientist to to be able to manage not only the driver's physical conditioning and preparation, but, you know, to have insights into nutrition and biomechanics and sports psychology enough to to keep um, keep the, the ship heading in the right direction over mm. a race weekend, but then bringing in other specialists around those coaches as and when problems arise. So we work with other specialist doctors, with nutritionists, with physiotherapists, um, with um, 
with you know specialists in sleep and recovery so so those tools are all available to our coaches um increasingly we, we have a few physiotherapists on the books and and um particularly embedded within the formula one teams rather than with the drivers themselves um we have a few people who are dual qualified in both sports science and physiotherapy and they they are incredibly versatile they they're relatively uh less common but those people are gold when we can recruit them mm. um so yeah so we we obviously focus on the basics of of getting physical conditioning right um looking after nutrition um we we do a lot of long haul travel tends to be clustered towards the beginning of the season and the end of the formula 1 season so we're thinking a lot about um sleep and jet lag management over those periods and perhaps we can go into that in a little bit more detail mm, i'd but like then, to do that yeah i i think again the the medical approach to all of this is important keeping everybody healthy like any other traveling circus there's a thousand people who never get to see their own gp um who have their the usual coughs and colds and travelers gastroenteritis and musculoskeletal aches and pains and skin rashes and so all of that tends to be managed on the road um mm. and then finally for the drivers we pull it all together with sort of a concept that we call the hints at core and we we start working with many of our drivers when they're teenagers when they're in formula 4 or formula 3 in the lower categories and we're trying to just raise them to be good functional healthy happy adults and I think you can't underestimate the extent to which our work on a race weekend is really just keeping them in the right cognitive frame of mind and helping them manage their key relationships um whether that's their key professional relationships with with their race engineer or their team management uh or in their personal life with with um partners and and families and parents uh and and other friends you know key friends that they've had around since childhood so all of those things are a really important part of what we do and i'm actually very proud of the fact that our coaches are a bunch of men and women with great integrity and great humility and that by and large our, our drivers uh, have turned out that way as well so maybe one of the little intangible effects that uh, hinser has had on the paddock over 20 years now well it's quite incredible because when we think of the the word coach um you know you think of this trainer on this you know you think of a trainer you think of a guy standing on the the side of a track with a stopwatch or a heart rate monitor or whatever it is and it's all very uh in your face type stuff but the way that it's approached with you guys at Hinser and the way that you know Laura and I have kind of always looked at you know what the role of a coach um is far far more than that and and like you mentioned briefly just there you know the Hinser core and and the core is um fascinating to me because it starts with with three questions. So tell me about that and 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 why it starts with those three questions when what they are. So so we ask our clients to ask of themselves who are you? You know, big big question in itself. Who are you? What do you want? And are you in control of your life? And and so these these questions are summarized as identity, purpose and control. And um you know it it takes a little bit of thinking to sort of understand the profundity of of these simple words but um essentially you need to to make all the decisions you need to make on a day-to-day basis as an athlete to to get up in the morning and go training to make the small food choices that you need to make to go to bed at the right time to to do all the things that contribute to a championship over a very long season 
you actually have to have a motivation which comes from somewhere else. So um, you have to have a clear idea of who you are, what your values are, and how that drives your purpose. Um, and, and and in that way, when you have those concepts sort of clear in your mind and those, and you have your life organized around those principles and those key relationships, then the other decision-making, the little 1% stuff that builds a world champion comes much more easily. And um, mm-hmm. we think it's a it's a foundation that's uh, indispensable to the rest of what might be considered our our day to day work. Mm, I, I love that. I I've, that was one of the things that you know we've done a little bit of consulting work with you guys and um, and Hinser and and loved that sort of the, the questions and, and one of the things about that I'm doing this show for is really trying to get to the bottom. Um, of what champion athletes and high performers are doing in their life that separates them. And I think those three questions, even if you want to, you know, do you know who you are? Um, do you know what you want? And are you in control of your own life? I kind of look at it as what are your passions? You know, what are your strengths or, you know, talents that you have? And can you align those strengths with your passions? And then are you taking 100% responsibility for all your thoughts choices and actions in your life and when you align all those things together and it's amazing the outcome and the purpose that you can have with your own life and it's been a key ingredient to a lot of the the conversations i've had with these great athletes is they found a passion they did a a couple of events or whatever and realized hey i've got some talent and strength here and 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 then at, at what point i love to ask you know did you pull the trigger and say right i'm going to go full on with absolute intent and take 100% responsibility for my life um, and make this happen. And that, in essence, is what you guys are saying in those three questions is, is you know, what do you, who are you and what do you really want? What are you passionate? What do you love to do? You know, and, and do you have the ability, do you have the talent and strengths and the knowledge and the skills to, to follow that passion? And then once you've aligned those, okay, let's, let's really go for it and, and, and make it happen. And I love that. I, I think it's a great place to start whenever you, you're going to work with a new client. Uh, I think it, it gives you a good idea of are they really going to take this the whole way? Um, you know, is their why big enough? <laughs> you know, because if their why is big enough, then, then anything can happen. And, and then so from there, you guys then have the core model. And like you mentioned, there's six parts of your core model. Um, I almost feel like there needs to be a seventh part. I think I've maybe mentioned it to you in the part where it's about building the right team. Um, but I think you guys have sleep, nutrition, biomechanics and body work, uh, general training or your, your, your physical training, your general health, and then um, mental strategies is, is the sixth component. And so your coach needs to be somewhat of a an expert or at least know what people within the Hintza group to go utilize to, to help optimize their athlete, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And and um, I think, as you would appreciate, this always comes down to the individual strengths and weaknesses of the athlete, their, their attention span for this kind of intervention, which is, which is a key defining variable. And then also the strengths and weaknesses of the coach. So many of our coaches will have a master's degree in maybe one of these areas, but they need to bring in a specialist for other parts. And in some cases, mm-hmm. a driver will have a particular problem with biomechanics or with mental strategies and 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 then they won't need to really think so much about nutrition or general health so you you bring in the appropriate specialist but you know I, i always say there's literally hundreds and hundreds of interventions 
proven in the scientific literature that will make some kind of small gain for any athlete in terms of their physiological or their physical performance. But the art of what we do is finding what are the two or three things that are going to have the biggest impact for that athlete? What are the two or three things that they are going to stick with? Um, you know, what what fits their timetable, their schedule, their interests and their attention span and, and really filtering out the things that are going to have um, a, a sustainable impact. And and it may be that you, you implement some things this year that will become less important next year and, and you move on to, mm. you know, another priority area. But um, having our coaches at the side of their athlete on a full-time basis monitoring all of those those that day-to-day progression is uh, is super important so yeah let, let's start with the top, the first one of those and that's sleep because i don't know how you guys do it <laughs> i don't mean sleep in general i don't know how you manage that jet lag and the the fact that you're on the road for 250 plus days a year and long haul flights like you said at the beginning and end of the seasons and and that kind of thing how on a day to day how are you guys actually monitoring and able to to keep people on track and your athletes in, on track i mean a lot of it is just um just reactive and and optimizing we we are as proactive as possible about this but um but the the formula 1 calendar is constructed for maximum circadian disruption like uh, the the calendar is put together basically and, and quite understandably um, on a commercial basis so various races are paying hosting fees to be the first or the last race of a season or to occur on a particular public holiday in, in the country that they're in so um, we start in the next six weeks we'll be in um, in spain australia bahrain vietnam china and then and in many cases people flying back and forth to europe in between each of those events and then, and at the end of the year, similarly, we have a run of uh, eight or nine races where we are literally heading east and west in every direction to Asia, to the Americas, to to, to South America, to um, to Russia and, and the Middle East, and it all all organised without any geographical logic. So there's there's two answers to your question. One is we we try to plan um, in terms of. Uh, when to sleep, when to acclimatize to different um, uh, time zones, when to judiciously um, expose the athletes to light and dark to, to get that circadian adjustment, and then sort of smaller physiological cues like meal times and exercise sessions. But um, when you're presented with a calendar like that, there, there are no perfect solutions. There is there is no yeah. watertight way of doing this, and. And this is where the monitoring comes in a little bit. So I've been very interested to hear a number of your athletes reflect that they don't use a lot of devices mm. for monitoring. And, and I think that's really interesting and really valid. And um, we do actually use um, we use things like an aura ring or, or first beat mm. to monitor heart rate variability, for example, and sleep. The, the aura rings have t- proven to be a, a really convenient form of monitoring for us. But, but some drivers aren't that interested and, and our coaches rely pretty heavily on subjective monitoring of how people are feeling, how mm. how fresh they are when they wake up in the morning and then how that ties into the measured variables across their physical preparation sessions. So it's it's a, a blend of various factors um, combined with, you know, some good coaching instincts and um, and a little bit of common sense wherever possible. 
It's funny you talk about the, the the monitoring and and I think this is you know when you look at the different types of athletes that you work with and and I think about what how Laura likes to sort of approach things and how I like to approach things. So if I monitor things, it can actually create more anxiety for me. So if I if I'm recognizing that hang on I'm wearing my aura ring and I should be sleeping and I'm not getting a good score, I actually don't sleep as well because I'm I know I'm monitoring it. You know, whereas Laura can relax more because she's monitoring it. And it's almost like a psychological difference between two different athletes or two different people. And so, like you said, it becomes almost like an art where you're just trying to figure out how your athlete works. And and what fascinates me is, you know, the demand on these drivers, uh, especially, and the team around them, because, you know, they've got to have the these these machines working at, at the best of their ability. But the drivers are, are sitting in these cockpits and, and, and racing these machines at 200 plus miles an hour, 300 you know, 20 kilometers an hour and the alertness that they need, the reaction times that they need. And, and, you know, we can talk about the science of delayed reaction times under fatigue. That is what just fascinates me is how can they get behind these machines, you know, 22 times a year, year in, year out and, and still, still perform. And, that that is just incredible to me and so the science of it all and what you guys are doing you know yes there's an art but gee is there an app that you guys use that helps people helps these guys stay on track with it? i mean there's a lot of apps out there is there anything specific you use uh, yeah again this can be individual towards the the particular mm. case of the athlete hinta has its own better life app which we use predominantly in the corporate community but um mm-hmm. things like bridge and training peaks um i, I guess uh, and and time shifter for the um for the sleep and jet lag uh, are apps that we use from time to time um yeah I, I think what you were saying there in terms of the the physical exertion of a formula one race should not be underestimated i mean this is not just steering a car around a track um, I had a ride in, there's a two-seater Formula One car going around, which is used for some corporate events. And I had a ride a couple of years ago in Mexico. And honestly, I, I could not have done 10 laps in that car as a passenger, let alone driven it for two hours and hit every apex millimeter perfect for that whole time when there's a championship at stake. And I, I sort of liken the physical exertion to, you know, running a, a good age group level triathlon or marathon time at the same time as um, everyone around you is sort of jostling and nudging you and someone else else is in your ear asking you to solve maths problems. (laughs) And by the way, 200, 300 million people are watching and, and, and maybe there's a championships at stake or maybe your career is at stake or your contract. So, you know, the, the athletic dimension of it, um, should not be underestimated. There's a massive phys- physical differentiator in in driving a Formula One car, uh, and, and indeed for Formula Two and Formula Three as well. I, I remember, you know, like you mentioned, you know, you're friends with Mark Webber, and so am I. You know, former Formula One driver and two time Monaco winner and incredible athlete, and and we did some training together, and and I always treated him like an athlete. And yes, he's in Formula One, and and there is this kind of oh, you know. He's driving a, a go-kart kind of thing, whatever. And then I, we were up in uh, Colorado and I, I was with a couple of mates and we all went out to a, a really big um, uh, go-kart track. You know, it was a high-performance center. It was a proper area and rented these go-karts. <laughs> I was exhausted, mate, after 10 minutes. And I immediately got out of that go-kart and uh, I ended up 
texting Mark right away and say, look, I got to apologize. I don't think I ever truly respected you enough for the what you did um, in those machines. And, you know, since obviously having conversations with you and with Mark and understanding the physical toll, um, obviously with the, the mental and emotional toll, but the physical toll and you know, looking at some of the heart rate graphs of some of the drivers and 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 how their their heart rates one sixty plus the entire way, with moments where it's spiking way above that when they're dealing with tremendous g forces um, around those courses, uh, it, it truly is mind boggling to me that the strength and the endurance that these these athletes have um, that they're not drivers they're athletes you know and i think we take it for granted and i encourage anybody that kind of looks at motorsport and specifically formula one and and thinks oh yeah you know these cars are doing all the work um get behind a go-kart at your local arena and have a go and and karting actually is probably the best sort of parallel in terms of training off track the the testing in formula one is heavily restricted the, the seat time for drivers is very limited but karting is sort of a very good analog mm. Yeah. And are you guys flying commercial, or do you, they all do all the drivers and teams have their own planes, and is it all private so they can kind of have their own beds and everything? And I, I think the private jet thing is a little bit overstated. Um, certainly for long haul, it's almost all commercial. Um, mm. There are a couple of difficult parts of the itinerary. For example, this year we we have back to back races in Azerbaijan and Canada, so we we literally have to move the entire circus in forty eight hours from from Baku to Montreal, and so wow. we'll we'll use charter flights for that kind of thing. That you know there'll be three or four aircraft just uh, chartered to move the whole circus. Um, that that's the personnel. There's probably another nine aircraft for the the equipment. Um, so. Within Europe, I think there's a, there's a bit of private flight um, going on. It's just more convenient. Um, I personally would prefer mm-hmm. to drive to all the European events. Um, I, I think a, a one-hour flight in Europe routinely takes six or seven hours out of your day, so I'd rather drive and take my bike and listen to my own music the whole way. <laughs> yeah, listen to some great podcasts yeah. like Bibi Champion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, Greg. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. So you must, you, you've racked up, everyone must rack up some frequent flyer miles then. Oh my goodness. Are yeah, you like diamond platinum on every, every airline? <laughs> it's funny. There's a certain competitiveness around the, uh, the priority queues for boarding and uh, you see <laughs> your, your average, um, you know, business class businessman who doesn't know what's going on turn up with their air of importance and they don't understand that literally two thirds of the people on that flight are in the priority queue because they've all got the appropriate status <laughs> from flying all year. <laughs> Get a bit He's like, what yeah, what are these guys doing here? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So okay, let's move on from from the, the sleep and and talk about the nutrition because uh obviously like we just mentioned the the high performance athletes um how, how is that working on a daily thing and what do they eat you know before during and after the these these competitions these events so yeah nutrition what a what a uh, <laughs> difficult topic to, to <laughs> i mean nutrition is like religion um yeah. <laughs> all sorts of fascinating areas of progress in nutrition whether it be about you know particular types of diet or particularly the timing of meals or fasting or elements of managing the microbiome the gut microbiome so there's there's a huge amount of really interesting stuff going on and and literally week to week our knowledge on this is changing so it's difficult to make 
blanket recommendations. Again, it's very individualized to the driver. We we have a couple mm-hmm. of drivers who are vegan at the moment, which I you know personally I think is not optimal for everyone as an mm-hmm. athlete, but it does work for some. Um, I, I think there's some simple, clear messages. You know, um, any diet. So so try a few things, see what works for you. Basically, um, whether it's vegan, whether it's keto, whether it's carnivore, any sort of diet philosophy will probably be far superior to the standard Western diet. So if you're thinking about whole foods, if you're thinking about your meal timing, you're going to be doing okay and and every individual can experiment with what makes them feel good. Having said mm-hmm. that, we, we do test um, on a fairly regular basis for all the micronutrient and macronutrient sort of stuff and we we supplement accordingly although that's mm. again tends to be overstated um i think uh it was interesting listening to marinda carfrey recently talk about her supplement protocol and I, I think i've concluded more or less exactly what she has that a bit of fish oil if you don't eat fish and some magnesium and vitamin d is uh, probably mm-hmm. the important stuff to get right um and then yeah trying not to get swept up into to too much um too much uh, fad or religion around nutrition uh, hydration around some of the hot races is really important again um, sports hydration can be overstated in some areas but in formula one we've had a really um, strong focus on driver weight over the years and that's probably been one of the the main issues that our coaches deal with um, in years gone by taking weight off the driver was the cheapest and easiest way to take weight off the car. And we're talking, you know, every 100 or 200 grams counts in terms of lap time. Um, hmm. The the FIA is the governing body for the sport. And, and to their credit, we, we got to a point where this was starting to have a bit of an impact on driver's health. And I, I was able to raise this with, with Charlie Whiting, who was was a long-term race director for formula one again unfortunately passed away last year but charlie to his credit um saw this as an important issue and and got the regulations changed very quickly so driver weight has more or less been taken out of the equation now and and um i must say over the last 12 months all of our drivers are their, their lives have been transformed just having that extra kilo or two to play with um their eating mm-hmm. is not such a chore they can put on a little bit more muscle mass and there's a little bit more flexibility about how we prepare them physically so that, that, in mm-hmm. terms of nutrition that's probably been the biggest impact in in recent times so what is that specifically when you're saying the drivers what so um, what, yeah, what yeah. is the rule and what, what, how did that affect it? Yeah, I, I didn't want to bore everyone too much. No, I'm, I, I'm fascinated. So give me a quick summary. <laughs> Our drivers probably at the moment range between 59 kilos and 76 kilos in weight. And um, so there's a huge range there. The new regulation is that um, the driver plus their seat and their helmet and overalls um, is capped at 80 kilos and if a driver comes in at less than that 80 kilos they get ballast uh, fixed onto the seat to to equalize that with their colleagues so um you you can't be um you know seven feet tall and a an nfl player and and sit in a formula <laughs> one car but there's a lot more latitude for average size individuals and i guess we've had a we've had a trend probably just coincidentally but in recent years we've had a number of teenage drivers come in and most of them have tended to be very tall so um so it's been an issue building cars around them and also managing their weight and and i think it's it's 
nothing but healthy that we have this new regulation to make sure that you know healthy eating behaviors uh, are being maintained and reinforced in the paddock so what would the teams prefer the ballast or a heavier driver to take them to the 80 kilos what's what works better for the car with the ballast can you put it in areas that yes um, typically typically ballast has been preferred um because you can move it around the car in an advantageous way but Mm. in this case the the ballast is fixed um in dedicated locations on the seat so it's not really a big differentiator now there is other ballast related to the car weight itself and that's that's what the engineers can have a little bit more latitude with but uh, so really I, i think this regulation has been pretty effective in taking the driver more or less out of the equation Mm. I love how you said they how they build the build the build the car around the driver. <laughs> yeah, so Wouldn't we all love that? <laughs> Going to Toyota and say, "Look, here's my weight. I'm five eleven. I've put on a few pounds, mate. But can you, can you build my car?" <laughs> yeah, the cockpit dimension. So to to achieve the most aerodynamic car possible, you want the the cockpit to be really as you'd imagine, as small as possible in dimensions. And so, um, you know, the place where the driver sits is really shrink-wrapped around them. And if, if a very tall driver, for example, moves between teams, um, if the car's been designed around someone smaller, they can have a very, very uncomfortable season mm-hmm. or season and a half until that car is redesigned around them. So oh, it, wow. it is really that tight uh, from year to year. So with the teams... Uh because they have each each team has two drivers and and maybe a backup driver. Am I correct? Um, uh, so, so two drivers. There typically will be a reserve. It's very very rare that a driver misses an event, but um, but the bigger teams will have a dedicated reserve at the events. The smaller teams might just scramble for whoever's around and available. And so, do the two t- two drivers need to be the same kind of? size and weight then do they swap they don't swap cars or anything right they keep um no there'll be about four to six chassis built for each team for the year and they they can and do rotate between drivers so so um it is an engineering challenge for a team to have two different size drivers but it's Mm. not an insurmountable one Uh, and it Mm. look it does factor into recruitment a little bit but the driver's talent if they're tall and they're talented generally that might outweigh those considerations Mm. so moving on to the the training um what kind of work they're doing a lot of aerobic conditioning um i'd assume within the races are generally what an hour to an hour and a half so the the yes, aerobic conditioning is important for them typical race around 90 minutes um the shortest i think is is monza about an hour and a quarter and the longest is singapore which is also sort of the hottest and the most physically mm. demanding um so good aerobic base as you've observed and and that's about obviously their physical performance in the car, but but the real issue is that they need to have enough um, enough base to their fitness that they're driving the car on automatic pilot. And what you really want is a driver whose cognitive bandwidth is freed up, so so mm-hmm. they they have just the maximum reserve to focus on everything else that's going on around them in the race and the tactics um, that are required. So physical. Uh, an aerobic f- uh, base is fantastic um, and then there's specific physical areas like um, neck strength is the big one that gets a lot of publicity mm-hmm. so um, a four kilo head with a helmet on it um, with five or six g's of lateral forces requires a lot of neck muscle strength to control um, mm. in, in medium and high speed corners so again we're biz- building up the maximum neck strength for our drivers without trying to put too much weight onto them um, upper body strength, so so arms and shoulders and 
and chest just to sort of wrestle the car around the circuit. They, we do have power steering, but, um, but there's still a, a real physical exertion involved in, in sort of controlling the car. Mm. Um, core is sort of a bit of an overused cliche, but it is very important to have a, a stable midsection. Um, the driving seating position is, is very unusual. It's, it's semi-recumbent. It's almost lying back supine. And so it's a, it's a very odd position to be holding your body in whilst sort of exerting um, other parts like the upper body. And then, um, and then the legs, there's very, very brutal explosive braking forces through the left leg in particular. So, so that can be an area to work on. Interesting. I, I never knew there was it was such a an overall, you know, body strength and conditioning at um, lying down, lying down and trying to drive a drive a car. Do you do you have any concerns with? Have you had any drivers with severe cramping? You mentioned Singapore. I can't imagine, you know, the hip flexors. I'm kind of thinking of sitting in a car and, and trying to hold my leg in a certain position and, and cramping either in my my quadriceps or, or my psoas and the hip flexors does, does that ever occur or most of them um it's, you know um, cramping is not prominent like it is in say say football or some other or, or triathlon um it's an occasional thing um we, we've had a few little funny things around tremor around um particularly pedal action with, with sort of lower limb tremor but generally yeah. it's just um you know it's fatigue and strength that can tend to to dissipate over the over the, a long race mm. and and so these drivers i remember one of the guys that used to be a formula one driver jensen button he was kind of uh, mad about triathlon he, he may still be um they a lot of them do use sort of endurance sports like triathlon to sort of maintain their fitness or, or mountain biking i remember going mountain biking with with uh, daniel ricardo and mark weber both love their mountain biking they seem to be really into the risky type sports like that and i i remember thinking here's daniel ricardo going crazy down this this uh this mountain bike track with me in noosa thinking uh, i think he's got a multi-million dollar contract <laughs> i don't know that i'd be riding a mountain bike uh is that is that the kind of stuff that they're all doing yeah so mountain biking road cycling um a lot of snow sports as well at the appropriate time of year um, mm. and then as you say some some triathlon is pretty pretty popular but so we have this um this four to six week pre-season which we're in now and it's actually the only coherent block of training that we get with the drivers so it's a really really important time of year once mm. the season starts um in february march you kind of in a maintenance mode and a troubleshooting mode by then we get a little bit of a break in august um, mm. the emphasis there is is very much on um, a cognitive refresh though getting around mm. energy levels back up but there is a, an opportunity for a bit of training and then we, we actually have an enforced shutdown by regulation of the sport for two weeks in august so the factories must shut all emails must be turned off no work is allowed on the cars and um it's it's a little part of sort of f1 paddock history that i think no one would ever let go of because it's it's no. such a, a long-awaited break in the middle of a long I just can't believe you only get this sort of four to six weeks of conditioning phase. You know, Laura and I used to plan ourselves in, in Noosa and look at anywhere from sort of 12 to 20 weeks of conditioning before we get going with the year, you know, to really get ourselves into that peak peak shape. You might race a little bit during that time, but really it was to, to stay put and and for the, the mental and emotional as much as the physical um, to be in one spot was was tremendous. But 
you guys get this four to six weeks and then boom, you're at it. It really doesn't allow much time for to, to really build a bigger engine or, or build, you know, much more strength or, or anything like that. So it's when you say maintain throughout the year, yeah. you're still trying to develop as you can throughout the year without the focus being taken away from the racing, I guess. Yeah, that's right. And And for our coaches, I guess, for that reason, the periodization that they use even takes on a multi-year dimension. So you may mm. well be working at this time of year on things that are still carried over from from two, three years before that you, you're trying to build around. Well, that's why you said you grab the, a lot of the athletes when they're in the sort of Formula 3, Formula 4, and that allows you maybe to look at a 10-year plan with them kind of thing or 5 to 10-year plan where you can kind of build that fitness. Yeah, ideally you, you're trying to train them for the, the next category up and uh, mm. keep things moving along, correct? Yeah. And so then I want to move on to my favorite topic, which is really the mental strategies involved. Um, is, the coaches that you're using, do you have a, a psychologist um, on hand at Hintzer or do, does each driver work with somebody for the mental strategies specifically? So it's funny. I, I guess historically Formula One, rightly or wrongly, has resisted a couple of things that there's not a lot of actual technical skills coaching in terms of the driving for whatever reason wow. um, and there also hasn't been a lot of formal sports psychology um, so our system was based very much around integrating those core questions into every day of the driver's life and to some degree that does take care of a huge amount of the psychology that's required but you do occasionally you know you you'll come across a driver might be going through a, a run of errors on track or they might have a specific problem with qualifying, which is a, a very, very specific skill to peak on a Saturday to, to qualify. So we, we do have a couple of sports psychologists that we work with, but it's, um, it's something that we sort of deploy for specific um, purposes rather than for, as, a, um, as a preventative measure. Um, mm. Could we do more in that area? Probably, but but again, it's just a case of fitting in with a, a very very limited timetable and a very limited attention span, and probably the healthiest thing for a driver's psychology. Most parts of the, the season, most parts of their busy travel schedule is just to actually have some time off, um, rather than overloading it with lots of other new techniques and interventions. Mm. It's a fascinating area for me namely because you have several different schools of thought it's a bit like nutrition where you have the positive thinking mindset that you know you can you can change a negative into a positive and um but under physical duress and fatigue um that can actually lead to a negative because it almost pisses you off you know it's like just leave me alone and and that's where i loved chatting to mark allen who i bring up again and and that ability to to quieten the mind and, and calm um calm the the senses as much as possible and and training that on a daily basis as he mentioned in in that interview is is something that re really resonated with me i think in that ability to perform at your best is not about being positive it's about just staying calm quiet neutral you know all those kind of words that can just allow you to be in that moment and uh I, I can imagine with a lot of the drivers like you said a lot of it's about just escaping and and maybe that's going for a mountain bike or whatever it is but escaping so your mind isn't negative your mind isn't positive it's just there it's just in that moment and i should and uh, i can yeah I, sh I should illustrate 
some of the realities of a, a race weekend in Formula One and the things that you're talking about there, it's it's about minimizing distraction really and and maximizing the the mental energy as we call it. So so mm. giving someone the most leftover capacity that they can to take into the race car. So it's not just the physical effort of driving that the drivers will have. Um, around seven hours in the car over a race weekend. But apart from that, they'll have just a relentless round of media interviews, of marketing appearances. They'll have many, many hours of engineering meetings, which are very, very technical. You know, a lot of mathematical and engineering concepts that they really have to have their head around. The steering wheel of a Formula One car is a, a supercomputer nowadays. That it has, <laughs> you know, between 10 and 20 buttons, all with with dozens of sort of sub menus in it which they have to be um not only familiar with but operating on the fly in the car so most of what our coaches are doing is is protecting the driver's um cognitive energy across a race weekend and and that's as big a part of the psychology that we implement as anything else Mm, yeah just taking care of business for them so they can just focus on their job i love it no yeah Hintzer isn't just working with with motorsports, though, right? You, you're working with obviously. You mentioned that you've got the the business side. You've got business clientele and and uh, executives that work within the same sort of the same coaching. Everything that goes into a Formula One driver is also presented to to executives and, and, and businesses. And you've also got a whole realm of other sports and athletes that you're working with as, as well, correct? Yeah, that's right. So our, our history in sport is predominantly in motorsports, but we we have um, we have athletes in triathlon and equestrian sports, and um, you know we've we've worked a little bit in football and and uh, and other Olympic sports, uh, winter sports in particular. Um, but then there is a large corporate dimension as well. And as you said, the the life of a, a high level manager or a CEO does parallel very much what a what a Formula One driver goes through and. You know this this idea of managing your time and managing your cognitive energy and balancing your family life and how do you survive with sleep and nutrition in airports and hotels? So the the same themes carry over, and we're we're lucky to support you know a, a lot of um, very large businesses and corporations, particularly in Europe, um, mm. with with our model. Mm. I know it's been fascinating chatting with you, Luke, because, you know, and even our time that we've done some work, you know, consulting work with you guys at Hintzer, it was, it was such an education for, for both myself and Laura. Um, I think what we loved about what you guys are doing was, you know, we, we'd lived it, we'd lived at the highest level of sport for sort of 25 to 30 years. And, but it was the way that Dr. Aki Hintzer had put this model together and it's the scientific approach that you guys have that i think takes something like the knowledge we have and enables you to help others more clearly and more precisely um reach their potential as well and um you know it's been really fantastic just getting to spend this you know over an hour (laughs) chatting uh about how it all operates and how you operate as well i've always been so impressed with the way that you've gone about what you do and you know, I'm I'm truly hoping we get to to work together again. You know, in the future. But um, you know, for everybody listening, this guy is is a remarkable, and what they're doing. Check it out at hintsa.com. That's H-I-N-T-S-A, um, and they're they're doing incredible work. And if you're in the corporate world, you you definitely want to reach out to these guys and have them be a part of your team. If you're in the athletic world, 
definitely give them a, a shout out as well. It's uh, they've got tremendous people to work with. They only employ the best. Um, so Luke, mate, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Greg. Very, very kind words and uh, a pleasure to talk as always. And uh, as you said, we, we have had the pleasure of working together a little and, uh, and long may that continue. Yeah. All right, mate. Stay on the line. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Till next time. Bye-bye. Cheers. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.